Welcome back to our true crime podcast. My name's Hannah. I'm Kate and welcome to Don't Blame the Mom. Yes, we are at episode 17. Absolutely. So part two of our Rodney Alcala. Um, I think we just need to go through again, trigger warnings that some of this is going to be really horrendous and hard work. Um, Everything that we speak about and everything that we talk about, we will give you trigger warnings when things get awful. And all of our sources will be in our show notes. Um, And of course, we will at times tell you about things that we've been watching or listening to. Exactly. Um, we want to give a big shout out actually again this week to um, Sabrina. Thank you very much for uh, your messages on Instagram. And we hope you're enjoying the podcast. And also Shailene, she's asked us about when we're going to be doing um, a Patreon and getting out merchandise. So we are going to be working towards that in the future. Um, obviously, at the moment, we are not doing this full time, but hopefully one day we will. So um, we're going to be working towards getting our Patreon out. And when we do, we will definitely um, tell you about it on here as well and on Instagram also on our Facebook and our TikTok and every kind of platform we can possibly find you are so obsessed with our Facebook now aren't you I know I really am and, <laughs> you know I didn't even used to like Facebook but now I'm really loving it again so that's that's great you know I know so, we must be getting old right when you start loving Facebook again and we're definitely getting older <laughs> well, it's actually a good platform though it's actually quite interactive more so than I thought it was because you know the group thing yes buddy agrees clearly um <laughs> yeah buddy is with us today yes hello buddy aka satan he's always here by my feet <laughs> oh dear just nipping on your toes exactly so um i just do a little i'm gonna do a little uh, recap of um, what rodney alcala is about because um, there was part one last week yes so if you are only tuning in now do go back and listen to episode 16 which is part one of rodney alcala and everything will make a little bit more sense. Exactly. So he is also known as the dating game killer. That is the moniker most famously given to him in all true crime programs and, and books as well. And he is a, um, you know, a sexual predator and murderer of, of many women. And he was um, charged with killing, I think it was five to eight women. But he is most likely the killer of up to 100 to 130 women, so authorities believe. Now, um, we've covered a couple of those in last week's episode, but we are going to cover some more in today's episode. So let's crack on. Yes, from where we left off, absolutely. Yes. So um, Rodney Alcala is now living in LA and he's posing still as a photographer. Um, It's a way it's kind of his modus operandi it's his mo and it's his way to lure victims into secluded areas and to get victims alone you know just saying oh i'll take some pictures of you you know you're in la that's gonna work because there's a lot of people who um go to la because you know they want to be in the movies or they want to be you know perhaps models or or just on tv anything like that so it's a great ruse really to get pretty young women alone isn't it Yeah, and I think, you know, Rodney's not the only murderer to pull this ruse. No. You know, it's been used before and I'm sure it will be used again. Oh, absolutely. I've actually got some killers on our list of people we want to cover who did pose as photographers as well. But we'll definitely get into those at some point. 
Now, um, so he's in LA and he's picking up, um, he's actually doing some work as a wedding photographer as well. So he is oh. working as a photographer sometimes How? in the middle of killing or his, killing his victims as well. So he, can you imagine? You'd be devastated to learn that the photographer of your wedding was I mean, a prolific serial killer yeah. such as Rodney. I know. And I mean, I like picking my wedding photographer. I was like, it's quite a, it's a process where I, you know, you want to look at all their work and see like how good they are and I mean back then though you couldn't just jump on Instagram or jump on a website you know you kind of had to take them for face value um and he definitely had the equipment back then as well so um his his MO was definitely working unfortunately so um it was whilst posing as a photographer around this time that in 1978 Alcala auditions to take part in a hugely successful TV show in America called The Dating Game the dating game for those over here is really similar to Cilla Black's Blind Date. Blind Date, exactly. That was a huge Saturday night show that we had here for years, wasn't it? Absolutely. I mean, yeah. it, I, like that was massive in Ireland as well. Yeah, I like, loved used, that show. We used to that love it. so good. I remember it was on like just after Gladiators, I think it was. Oh, stop. Gladiators Loved ready. a bit of Gladiators. Absolutely. And I think, you know, even dating games now or versions we have of it is, you know, probably like Love Island or Married at First Sight, these kind of dating shows. People really buy into them because it's real people trying mm. to match up trying to mm. get like you know some romance going people love all that stuff and so back then in the 70s it wasn't any different the dating game was massive so this show had become hugely popular in the 1960s because there'd never actually been a dating show of that nature so Alcala auditions and he gets through and he actually becomes one of the show's eligible bachelors he was on the show and he was actually described as a very successful photographer. That's clearly what he'd been telling them he was. And when he was chosen for this, little did the producers know he'd already murdered at least five women and been charged with the assault of Tally Shapiro. So they hadn't done any background checks. It was obviously a lot harder to do background checks in those days. I mean, I feel like stuff like this guy, this is why we have background checks now. Yeah. You know, because of the craziness of the fact that somebody who was, and at this stage, he already, as you said, had that criminal record. Yeah. So there's no way you're putting somebody on a dating show who has a sexual no. deviant history and then you're going to try and set him up on a date? Oh, with with a woman? No, absolutely not. Exactly. And I think it's important to say that the premise of the show is that the the woman who the so the woman who is on it she cannot see the three contestants no they're behind a screen exactly sorry i don't know if you're about to explain yeah this. no so it's no you're right it's just the answers she has to go on the whoever answers her questions the best and gives her the most the responses she likes the most is yeah. who she will end up picking and then the screen goes back and then she sees who this eligible bachelor she is be. that she's going to go on a date with. Yes, yeah, so they have no idea what the person looks like. They don't meet before. No. They are, you know, it's it is a blind date. It's, which a, it's is what a blind it was date. Here. Exactly. Yeah. So producer of the show, Mike, Mike Metzger and his wife, Ellen Metzger, say they initially disagreed on whether Alcala should be a contestant no when way. he auditioned. Yeah. At the time, it was 1978. So like I said, the te technology didn't exist for these background checks. So they had to go on their own choices of who they liked and who, who they didn't like the look of. And it's not like, you know, now we can check at the drop of a hat. They didn't have that. So one of them liked him 
him and she liked him and the guy didn't. So, Wait, so the guy didn't like him? The guy wasn't sure about him. So nobody working on the show was aware that he was a convicted criminal and really dangerous to women. That didn't even come into the equation. Now he's on a show where the aim is to win this date with this woman, which, I mean, if thinking about it now, this woman would have been in such danger. Mm. Um, he was seen by all the producers and most people back then as an attractive guy. People were described as a good-looking, charming man. And they thought all the women were going to love him when they saw him on telly. And this is what Ellen thought. But her husband said he felt differently, saying, I quote, he had a strange personality. Um, he had a mystique about him that I found really uncomfortable. Who's Ellen? Um, the producer's wife, who also worked on the show. Oh, okay. So they worked together as a they team. They worked together. Right. They're now husband and wife. And mm-hmm. one liked him, one did not like him. Right, I get you. So he does end up going on the show and him and two other bachelors are answering these cheeky, well, cheesy questions to win a date they with the bachelorette. Cheeky, well. cheeky, they're cheesy, they're kind of tongue in cheek. And the bachelorette was called Cheryl Bradshaw. She asked Rodney Alcala questions like, I'm serving you for dinner. What are you called and what do you look like? Alcala responds, I'm called the banana and I look good. She (laughs) says, can you be a little more descriptive? And he says, peel me. (laughs) I mean, cringe. vomit i can't it's just so cringe but i suppose that's what you allowed on the sort of tv then it was kind of you know supposed to be amusing but it's all just so awkward now isn't it guys honestly go and watch this on youtube you can watch rodney alcala on the dating game on youtube and when he goes i'm the banana peel me it's just oh it's just so cringe it is cringe yeah but like she's she's not in the best position because like the other two aren't great either no you no. know but i mean i would argue obviously in hindsight that the others are definitely better than a serial killer but um one would she hope. doesn't one would <laughs> hope but she doesn't know this yet so bradshaw ends up picking alcala at the end to go on the date with her And another competitor, another bachelor, Jed Mills, said Alcala had it all planned and in the green room had said, I always get my girl. Jed had also described him as really creepy. So, however, once Bradshaw, she sees um, Alcala and she's introduced to him, she was really put off going on a date with him. And the next day, she calls the producers to say, I can't go out with this guy. There are weird vibes coming (sighs) off him. He's really strange and I'm not comfortable female intuition absolutely got instinct i actually got chills then goosebumps yeah my hairy arms like my hair my arms are sticking (laughs) up now (laughs) so luckily for her she didn't go on that date with him or she very well could have been his next Next victim victim. and that fella jed mills we actually know him from things like seinfeld he is actually he was a paid actor on the show yes he was yeah he got like 400 dollars to be on the show or yeah, something and he remembers alcala well and and in the interviews i mean you can we'll source this but uh, you'll be able to see he actually says like, he was very creepy so um speaking of the next victim we are getting on to alcala's actual next victim so february 14th 1979 Alcala picks up 15-year-old hitchhiker Monique Hoyt in Riverside County, California. He drove Hoyt to his apartment where they had consensual sex, um, like, so with her permission. Hang on, um, she was 15? She is no. 15. Okay. So, yes, um, he is with, with a, a teenager, a child, basically. So, yeah. even though it's consensual, it's still absolutely illegal. 
They then traveled to a really secluded mountainous area near Banning, California in the morning where Alcala took pictures of her in her underwear and also pictures of them mm. engaging in, in sexual acts together. And then suddenly Alcala ties her up. He gags her with a t-shirt. He beats her. He rapes her and he sodomizes her and then he bludgeons her in the head with a rock that he's picked up. So Hoyt really cleverly manages to talk Alcala round and she gains his She survives trust. that. She survives this by basically pretending that she's okay with this. By when she has come around, she's being very nice to him and she's manipulating the situation to where, okay, I need to survive. What a clever you know? young girl. Really clever. So um, she talks him around and she's gained his trust by being just really friendly and like she wasn't going to report it or anything. And so he actually agrees to take her back to Riverside where she escapes through the window in a gas station bathroom. She makes a report to the police about this terrifying rape and kidnapping, basically. But once he's arrested, Alcala's mum posts his bail as soon as he's arrested so he is free to kill again. Oh dear, here we go again with the moms. Yep. Jill Terry Barkham was 18 years of age at the time of her murder. She was suspect she was a suspected runaway from now I'm going to get this wrong. Anida, New York. Okay. Uh, I tried. <laughs> she had moved to LA to become a model. And Jill was actually found by hikers on the 10th of November, 1977. And it is described everywhere as rolled up like a ball. Mm. So she was found in a ravine off Mulholland Highway in LA. Um, she had been stripped from the waist down and posed in this tucked kind of position. Um, there was evidence of rape, strangulation and bite marks on her right breast. Initially, police thought that she was a victim of the hillside stranglers. A case that was actually investigated by our man, Detective Frank Salerno, yes. the bulldog that we know from the LA Sheriff's Department who assisted in the capture of Richard Romero. Yes, and also um, with the capture of the Hillside Stranglers, Kenneth Bianchi yeah. and Angelo Bono, wasn't it? Absolutely, and both of those men, the Hillside Stranglers, they never actually accepted responsibility for this crime. And years later, DNA would link Alcala to this crime. Yeah. But it was an issue. They did think that it was um, the Hillside Stranglers. Um, now, after this, Georgia May Wickstead of, was 27 years of age at the time of her death. She was found bludgeoned to death with a hammer in her home in Malibu. And this was on the 16th of December in 1978. Um, Georgia was a nurse. And she had actually gone out that evening with her nursing friends. Um, they had gone to a local bar and she was obviously the designated driver or maybe in the 70s, probably it didn't really matter. Yeah, fair. <laughs> but um, they, she had given her friend Barbara Gale a lift home after their evening out together. Now, Barbara was actually the last person to see Georgia alive. And it was she who sounded the alarm the next day when Georgia didn't show up for work. Mm. Um, and obviously, being a nurse, when she didn't come in, they knew of something course. was up straight away. Absolutely. So, I mean, it's really interesting because Malibu is actually a really affluent, like upper middle class type of area. Yeah. And I think, again, it's kind of like what I was saying about the Rockefeller estate. 
he must be such a chameleon. Like he can fit in everywhere he yeah. goes. He doesn't stand out. No, but and, and like I said, he he seems like quite an attractive, mm. um, charming, n- nice young man. And there's plenty of those in LA. So how would you decipher the ones that were dangerous and, and the ones that weren't? Because he certainly didn't give those vibes off Absolutely. straight away. So Akala had forced entry into Georgia's home and she was found naked and posed on her bedroom floor. And now this is a big trigger warning. Um, so for skippers, please skip ahead. Um, so her genitals had been mutilated. Yeah. Wow. So he he really went down a mm. dark road Savage. of torture Savagery, that with is. Georgia. Yeah. So Alcala actually left a handprint at the scene of this crime. And this handprint would later link Alcala to this crime. And I think that was in about 2004 that this handprint wow. like, um, was was linked back to Alcala. Mm-hmm. So he was known to beat, rape and strangle his victims. And he often used tights, stockings or like trousers or pants. Yeah. Um, so he always often used the victim's own clothing yeah. to strangle them. And always left them in strange, posed, pr- provocative positions. positions. Mm. And, you know, I don't this is usually kind of a sign of real support. Very deviant, yeah. You know, this narcissist yeah. pers- narcissistic personality. Yeah. Um, so they actually found his earring, her earring, sorry, in his home when they searched it mm. in 1980. Yeah. So they did find links to him, but obviously, the, you know, over time they were able to link this case properly together. Exactly. Now, on June 24th, 1978, so this is a year before the assault of Monique that I just uh, mentioned, um, Charlotte Lee Shug Lamb, so they called her Shug for short, um, she's 31, I know, um, she's 31, and she went down to the laundry room of her apartment complex in El Segundo. So this was a city in Los Angeles and located on Santa Monica Bay. So she's headed down to do some laundry on this particular day. And later that same day, Charlotte's body is discovered in the laundry room. She's been sexually assaulted. She's been beaten. She's been strangled with a shoelace. And her body had been posed, um, again, in a vulnerable position with her hands behind her back. The same method that he uses throughout all of his crimes. This guy is an absolute savage. He's a deviant. Um, He didn't just kill and run. He spent time. Mm. Um... Um, he was about the torture. He absolutely was about the torture and about the killing. Her killer had left DNA at the crime scene that would later be matched to that of Alcala. So back then, obviously, the 70s, DNA was not a thing. Um, so it's amazing they kept this, but it was later linked to Alcala. And also, Charlotte's DNA was found on a pair of earrings found in his storage locker further down the line when they seized his property. Now, this nailed Alcala once he was apprehended as the murderer of yet another innocent young woman. Um, Now, on June 13th, 1979, Jill Marie Parento, I think it's Parento, uh, who was working as a computer key punch operator, decided to leave work early for the day as she had tickets to a baseball game. Um, The next morning, Jill, who's usually a very punctual, reliable person, she didn't turn up to work at all, which her work found really odd straight away. And so they instantly reported it to police. So well done, guys. You know, they knew this wasn't something in her character. Mm. And when the police received this concerned call, they drive to Jill's apartment in Burbank, where they straight away see signs of forced entry. So they enter this apartment to find Jill naked and she's dead on the bathroom floor. 
She'd been posed with pillows under her shoulders and she'd been sexually assaulted, beaten and strangled, as is Alcala's way. Um, the, the scene shows that the killer had cut himself on the broken glass whilst crawling through her broken window as he tries to get into the house. So he's left blood evidence. He's left his own blood. This blood would later help incriminate Alcala and identify him as Jill's killer. And later down the line in court, Jill's best friend, Catherine Bryan, testified that she and Jill had actually met Alcala at a club a few nights before Jill's murder. Oh my God, he must have followed her home. Exactly. So it seems, again, his MO, it's like the first crime that's linked back to him only after his death. He'd he'd met someone at a club. He says, we're going to go to the IHOP. So it's another part of his MO where he meets people at clubs or he follows them in a car, you know, and gets them and takes photos of them. So his MO seems to be very well practiced and, and clear. He's obviously seen Jill and he's seen where she lives. And he's remembered it and he's gone back. So he's stalking as well. He's obviously stalking and he's like, is this person a potential victim? He's done his homework. This is very premeditated. So he meets his victim out of clubs, you know, or approaches them in the car and he gauges in conversation and then obviously judges each situation. Can I follow her on this night kind of thing? Mm-hmm. This is what he's ended up doing. Um now, this either he probably was luring them also with the promise of taking photos, some of them as well. But it seems like he's followed her home in this particular um, attack. And the photography thing was obviously a great way to get women's attention too, if he wanted to use that MO. Because LA, like I said, is full of people who did move there to try and be in the movies and try and become models and things like that. That is what LA is essentially known for. It's Hollywood, you know. It's an amazing way for him to get victims without any kind of argument. And there's loads of fake photographers out there. Like I said, I've I've encountered some as well before. And I've been approached by fake photographers um, online. And I'd be mean, like, hell no, yeah, you know. Yeah. I know that there's rotting alcalas out there, okay? <laughs> I am, what's the word I'm looking for? I am in the knowledge. Exactly. I know. Um, so on the 20th of June, 1979, 12-year-old Robin Kristen Samso had been on Huntington Beach with friends. Later friends told police how a man had approached the girls while they were playing in the sand and asked to take their photos. A neighbour or a local woman who knew the girls, noticing Alka approach the girls, stepped in to ask what he wanted. Mm. He quickly made excuses and disappeared from view. Robin had ballet class that afternoon, parted ways with her friends, but she actually borrowed a friend's bike to make it to her class on time. So that was actually the last time that Robin was seen alive. Now, earrings that belonged to Robin's mother that Robin often wore were later found in Alcala's Seattle storage unit. Mm. Um, he tried to claim later that these were his own earrings and that he used, and he then used video footage of himself on the dating game oh. during his trial to show the jury that he often wore earrings. Like somehow that this proved that these earrings were actually his. Right. So the jury actually couldn't see any earrings on Alcala no. in the video. No. You know, it's all just ridiculous. Yeah. Um, all just playing into his narcissism. Absolutely. So Robin's body was found 12 days after her disappearance on the 2nd of July, 1979. Her body was found badly decomposing near the Pes- um, Pasadena foothills of the Sierra Madre. And it is believed that animals had actually scattered the bones. Mm. Um, making it just more difficult for them to find her. She had been raped and strangled and they found photos 
in this location of other young girls. Wow. So he had actually bought, and this is <gasps> reminiscent to the scene again in the Rockefeller estate yeah. where he had also bought other girls to the same scene. So he was bringing these girls to the same places. The areas he's comfortable in. Absolutely. He's familiar he knows with. the areas. Yeah. Um, so her friends, or Robin's friends, gave descriptions to the police sketch artists and the sketch was recognised by one of the parole officers at Alcara's previous parole hearing. So he saw it, sounded the alarm that this sketch looked extremely like Alcala. Now, not only did he see it, actually, I've heard this morning on something I was listening to that the man that you mentioned at the beginning, I can't think of his name, was it Dale, who helped um, Tally. Oh, um, oh yeah, the guy who follows the car. Yes. Yeah. He also saw this sketch on the news. Donald Hines. Donald Hines. Yeah. Also saw the sketch on the news and he also called the hotline to say, I know exactly who that is. This guy is on the ball. So I heard that only this morning. Donald Hines should should have been a detective, I swear. Absolutely should have been. I wonder what he did for a living. Um, he so he apparently also rang in saying that he had seen that he knew who that was. Wow. Um, so although prosecutors knew it was Alcala, it would actually take thirty-one years for this conviction to stick. Unbelievable. Mm. Unbelievable. I believe Hannah, you're going to get into this whole yeah. trial. So um, obviously now that he has been. Um, put forward as a suspect by um, not only like law enforcement, but Donald Hines, as you said. So the hunt is now on for Alcala and they find him living at his mum's house in Monterey Park, which is just a stone's throw away from where Robin Sanso's body has been discovered. Yeah, it's really interesting because he actually tries to pretend to police Oh, I never go down there. It's very mm. rare that I'm around um, Huntington. Right. But obviously when they found all those photos, of they course. were like, you're an absolute liar because we can actually prove by these photos. And he's in the area, mm. very close to where the body's discovered, which means he knows the area. Yeah. But also she was taken once she was abducted 40 miles away from where her body was discovered. So what are the odds that he'd been spotted on the beach and then her body where she had been taken from Mm. and then her body was discovered 40 miles away right next to where he's living. Yeah. You know, it's just stacking up against him. So the police um, find a receipt in the storage locker in Seattle, which they seize. Um, They go through this storage locker and in that locker, they find a treasure trove of evidence that Alcala could in fact be a serial killer. They find thousands of photos of women in compromising positions and young boys and underneath that there's a bag just full of women's earrings so what a lot of us will know in the true crime sort of you know world and things like that be referred to as trophies where the killers will take say uh, i don't know like jewelry or necklaces from the victims or perhaps driver's licenses or things from the victim or from the scene to collect and to so they can look back on them and relive the murders mm-hmm. that they that they committed. Yeah. Um so they've got like loads of evidence in this locker, storage locker. So um also like you said, Robin Sampso's gold earrings, little gold ball studs were also found. Her mum did identify those as Robin's. He tried saying they were his, he was lying. And um, actually, when when Alcala was arrested, he told his sister, go to this storage locker and empty it now. But the police, he didn't know the police had already found a receipt. And so they'd already taken a preemptive strike and gone straight to that locker before he'd even had a chance to tell his family, clear this locker out now, mm. you know. 
Um, and I would hope that his sister wouldn't have gone along with that because then I that know. makes you complicit in these crimes, love. So he is arrested July 1979. He's held without bail. And in 1980, he was tried and convicted and sentenced to death for Robin Samso's murder. However, this verdict was overturned by the California Supreme Court because the jurors had been informed of his previous sex crimes, including the attack on little Tally Shapiro. So, of course, this isn't going to be allowed as it would influence the jury and influence the verdict. I mean, rightly so. So it's dropped. I know. Well, this is a thing. I mean, I uh, sometimes I'm like, I'm sorry, but if you have a, you're a repeat offender mm. and say you're, you know, getting charged with a young girl's murder, which he is, surely the fact that you almost murdered another little girl should absolutely be applicable in court. Yeah. That should absolutely be taken into account. I know it's insane. But because of this, that sentence was dropped. So in 1986, he was tried for a second time. And once again, Rodney Alcala is sentenced to death. Now, in 2001, a Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals... It never ends. It never ends. The panel nullified the second conviction partly because a witness was not allowed to support Alcala's claim that the park ranger who discovered Robin's body had been hypnotised by police investigators. So Rodney is clearly pulling out all of the stops here, saying, you know, the park ranger's talking rubbish, he'd been hypnotised, the police did it to him... All of this absolute rubbish. You know how they train police officers to hypnotise people well, all you the know, time. Clearly they do it all the time, <laughs> don't they, Rodney? Honestly, he's such a douchebag. So they are going to trial for a third time. Now, whilst preparing for this third court case in 2003, Orange County, California investigators realised that Alcala's DNA, which has now been sampled and tested under a new state law, well against his many objections, of course, because Rodney Alcala was not going to let anyone test his DNA if he had anything to do with it. Yeah, I bet. But this new state law was like, nope, we're doing it anyway, mate. And it matched semen left at the murder scene of two other women in LA. So ones that we've always already um, discussed. They e- there's even more evidence gathered, including cold case DNA, which leads to another match in 2004. So Alcala is now being indicted for four additional murders. So that was Jill Barkham, who you mentioned earlier, Kate. Yeah. Um, the one who they thought was murdered by Hillside Stranglers. Mm-hmm. There was Georgia Wickstead, Charlotte Lamb, yep, and Jill um, Parento as well. Um, all that we covered a little bit earlier. So this is when they matched his DNA from... Charlotte Lamb, two earrings found in his storage locker along with Robin Sampso's. So her DNA um, was still on there years later. Charlotte Lamb's was. So the benefits of DNA are now helping solve his old murders. They didn't have, obviously, DNA in the 70s. Mm-hmm. And that's why it took so long for them to pin what they already thought could have been him for most of them. They couldn't pin it until now. I remember uh, listening to, I think it was Paul Hull's book. Oh. Where he said, we love him. We do. We absolutely love him. Yeah. But he says in it that although in the 70s they didn't have the ability to test DNA, they were aware, you know, scientists were aware that this was be. going to become yeah. a thing. And so actually this is why they were still holding evidence. Because, you know, people <sighs> much more intelligent than, I was going to say you and I, but I'll just mm. say me, were, <laughs> were already preempting 
that DNA would be helping cases in the future. Mm. They just hadn't quite got there yet. No, but I mean, it's amazing they even had the foresight to actually say, right, well, we're going to preserve this until something does potentially change mm. down the line. And Absolutely. Thank God that they did because this is why we have so many cold cases solved. Between his second and third trial, Alcala, the egotistical narcissistic maniac that he is, wrote and self-published a book. You know how we feel about this. It's called You, the Jury, where he claims innocence in the Sampso murder and he tries to put forward other suggestions as to who may have in fact committed the murders instead of him. I just, I just can't. He just doesn't stop. It never ends. So annoying. So he also filed two lawsuits against the California penal system for an incident where he slipped over and for refusing to give him a low fat diet, which he had asked for. You know, you've got to watch those pounds in all, in the, in prison, don't you, Rodney? Because He was probably going to try know? and pull a Ted Bundy and slip, slip through the vent. Slip through yeah, the, uh, maybe he was going to slip vent. through the bars if he got thin Honestly. enough. Honestly. <laughs> um, you know, he was also in San Quentin as well, which is, you know, where the hill, where... Our man, Rich Ramirez, one of the toolbox yeah. killers was, the freeway killers, Will Bonin, the famous San Quentin uh, prison, the oldest prison in LA as well. So um, in 2010, Alcala stood trial for five murders after prosecutors won a case to charge him for all five of these new murders, including Samso, uh, Robin Sampso's all at once. So finally, decades later, he's being charged again for Robin Sampso's murder. It's so unfair that her family had to go through decades of this. Mm. It's unbelievable that that was allowed to happen. I mean, the strength of that family. Yeah. Are, are you about to say about the mum? Well, you, you go. So... The, he, when he was acting as his own attorney, not only did he jump up there and be a deter, uh, an attorney and a defendant. Yeah. Are you going to say about that part? Yeah. Okay, well, I'll just say about the mum then. So he actually called poor Samso's mother onto the stand mm. and he interrogated her for two hours. Unbelievable. Can you imagine how, the no. rage that woman must have felt yeah. having to sit there and be interrogated by the man who tortured and murdered your 12 year old daughter and again another parallel to Ted Bundy it, it's the audacity yeah. of it Ted Bundy was allowed to interrogate one of the girls from the sorority house like it's where, unbelievable where is the line like how can a judge not say this is this a step is too exactly. far exactly well it's all human rights though isn't it he had the right to do it unfortunately what about the poor mother's human rights exactly like what kind of I hope he's paying the bills for the therapy that she needs after exactly. that exactly so I'm actually was just coming to the bit because I actually wrote down what does this attention seeking narcissist do he chooses to represent himself and acts as his own attorney. And for five hours, he plays the role of both interrogator <laughs> and witness. And he does it in two different voices. I know, he I know. He puts on a fake voice as the interrogator and then a different voice to answer his own questions. Like, is he doing it just for kicks? It's like role play. It's, it's attention. It's, it's pure attention, isn't it? All eyes on him. So he does that for five hours. He's asking himself questions in this weird, low voice. This is the actor back in yeah, him again, isn't it? it's really odd. Um, he also addresses himself as Mr. Alcalo. So he <sighs> asks himself questions um, and, and calls himself Mr. Alcalo. 
And then he answers them as himself, Mr. Alcala. And it's look, insane. You, you know that the next offence is going to be, well, clearly I have a split personality, so there oh, you have it. I'm sure he'll pull that one out <laughs> of the bag. So this absolute douchebag has also, like you said, interrogated Robin Sampso's mother, which is absolutely awful that she was put through that and it shouldn't be allowed. Um, and Alcala made no attempt to argue that he didn't kill the four other women, um, except to say he couldn't remember killing them. But he was arguing that he didn't kill Robin Sampso. And in his closing argument, he played the song by Arlo Guthrie, which is called Alice's Restaurant, where the character in the song tells a psychiatrist that he wants to kill people. And it's a really scary, disturbing song. So if you Google it, it's, it's really literally long. someone also screaming, I want to kill, I want to kill. Why, if you're trying to be in court saying, I didn't kill Robin Sampso, and I don't remember killing the other women, why would you then play a song that you clearly like about someone who says they want to kill. How I, is that relevant? Insane. He's The guy's a nutter, obviously. <laughs> so um, and in his trial, Tally Shapiro actually stands up. Tally Shapiro herself stands yes. up and she finally gets to testify against the man who tried to kill her when she was eight years old. The prosecutor argued that Alcala was a sexual predator who knew what he was doing and he, he knew what he was doing wrong and he just didn't care. So in March 2010, Alcala is sentenced to death for a third and final time. Now, this bloke is not getting out of it. In 2011, he's indicted again. Well, he's indicted for the additional murders of Cornelia Crilly um, and Ellen Hover, who was the, the heiress. And he pleads not guilty to those, but he was sentenced to additional 25 years to life on top of his already death sentence. Yeah, so... <laughs> Do you know, the downfall for Alcala was that he always thought he was the smartest person in the room. And, you know, the thing about that is that you actually didn't need to be the smartest person in that courtroom to see that this guy's guilty as hell. Oh, yeah. You know, so he's just a fool. <laughs> anyway, Alcala was imprisoned in California State Prison, Corcoran, which, uh, which was also home to Charles Manson, Juan Corona, now, Juan Corona was the migrant killer in the early yes. 70s. Now, he was the most prolific killer until Dean Coral, oh. who we had did in one of our earlier episodes. Yeah, one of our really early episodes. Um, in, so, in 1996, Cor Corcoran Prison was actually considered one of the most dangerous state prisons for inmates. So, there were numerous articles and documentaries covering the alleged abuse suffered by inmates due to prison staff. So all these allegations of prison staff orchestrating attacks on inmates and using other inmates and that kind of stuff. In fact, in the first eight years of its existence, something like seven inmates were shot dead and 50 seriously wounded. Wow. So it's quite a dangerous place to be. But of course, Alcala was held on death row, which only holds 47 prisoners at any one time. Right. And it's the safest place in the prison to be. Damn. Yeah, apparently, actually, apparently that's quite common in most prisons that death row is the safest, safest. place because you're so you're sectioned off from mm. uh, you know people who are potentially one day going to get out. Yeah, and there's very little violence and problems apparently happen in those kind of, in that area of most prisons. Um, Alcarna died. We'll all be glad to hear of natural causes on the 25th of July. 24th, 20, wasn't it? It was on my birthday. When 24th of July, was it? Sorry. Mm. 24th of July, Hannah's birthday, most importantly, <laughs> 2021. 2021? Yeah, because I remember waking up and seeing Rodney Alcala had died and I was like, no way. He'd also been arrested on the 24th of July. So 
Yeah. Well, good date, guys. Good date. It is. So he, but 2021, the yeah. two years yeah, ago. Yeah, literally. It was literally, I remember it. He was 77 years of age at the time of his death. So current inmates of Corcoran are James, Joseph James D'Angelo. <gasps> The also Golden State known as the Killer. Golden State Kira no or Eron's, the East Area Rapist. Yeah, not, the uh, original Night Stalker. Original Night Stalker. The Vis- Visalia Ransacker was yes, one of them. absolutely. Yeah. Um, Scott, he's actually one of my scariest ones, I think. 100%. We are definitely going to cover him one day and it's going to be a big one. Yeah, absolutely. Scott Dulesky, um, he murdered his neighbour at 16 years of age. Now, Dana Ewell, this is the young man that was so obsessed with money that he actually murdered his family, his wealthy, wealthy family, in order to get a hold of his assets. Mm. I, I don't know if you've heard of him, but I've definitely heard about this fella. Mm. Really narcissistic, horrible guy, but he's in there too. So upon Alcala's death, Jeff Sheeman, who is a cold case investigator who had been working on clearing cold cases in Wyoming, said of Alcala's death, death that he is where he needs to be I'm sure that's in hell Tali Shapiro is quoted as saying the planet is a better place without him that's for sure it's a long time coming but he got his karma yeah um so in prison Alcala as Hannah said was a pain he put through court cases about that slip and fall you know he was constantly doing little things like that um, and yeah, the low-fat diet, he did a huge big deal about the low-fat diet that they hadn't Honestly. given him what he wanted and yada, yada, yada. Um, so in 2010, investigators released 120 photos from Rodney's portfolio that they hoped the public could help them identify the people who were in the photos. They ended up holding back over 900 photos as they were deemed too sexually explicit Mm. to post anywhere, including like online or anywhere like that, Um, as they wanted to protect the dignity of the victims. So I'm assuming by this that those photos were probably people who were maybe unconscious or maybe already dead. Yeah. Definitely people who were not co- what's the word when you're like allowed uh, consensual consenting to being in the photos Mm. so there is a lot of photos that we will never see for that reason but those 120 photos are still up online they are still investigating they still want people to look at them yes um we will put up a link for that we'll we'll put up a link somewhere if we know how to yeah in the show notes just where where you can see those photos they're really interesting to look at yeah because i mean obviously they would have all been from the 60s and 70s but even if it just if one person recognized a distant relative or someone who perhaps went missing they might not all be victims as well no some have been proven to actually be victims but some may not be so 21 women came forward straight away after said, they were put me. up and said that's me yeah. and I survived and nothing happened and then they took those ones down I think five or six came yeah. were recognized by family yeah and as people who were missing yeah and I'm not sure that any of those bodies were found. well there is actually one that does lead to a conviction uh, oh, or yeah. a link which I'll get into on March in March 2011 in Marin County north of San Francisco investigators announced they are confident Alcala is responsible for the murder of 19 year old Pamela Lamson she disappeared after a trip to the Fisherman's Wharf to meet her um, uh, to meet a man who'd offered to photograph her 
And in October, that was October 9th, uh, 1977. And then after, her naked battered body was later found in Marin County near a hiking trail. But there wasn't any fingerprints. There was no usable DNA. So charges were never filed. However, police say there is sufficient evidence to prove to them that serial killer Rodney Alcala committed that murder. Now, in September 2016... He was charged with the murder of 28-year-old Christine Ruth Thornton. She disappeared in 1977 and moved... um, She'd basically moved away with her boyfriend, away from her family and to live in San Antonio, Texas. After her and this guy split up, um, which was in Mississippi in June 1977, she was seen hitchhiking and then never heard from again. But in 2013, Thornton's sister recognizes her from one of the pictures that were made public um, and she identifies her sister in one of Alcala's photographs. She recognizes her sister because of her feet. She actually says that I saw, she, she kept looking at this picture and said, it looks like her, it really looks like her. Um, but she couldn't be sure until she looked at her feet and she said she had a, a toe that kind of was a little bit raised, raised up, up like a little bit hooked over the other one. And as soon as she saw that, she said, that's that's my sister. Oh, God. So it was a picture of a dark head girl um, on like a motorbike wearing a yellow shirt. Um, and her body had been found in Sweetwater, Wyoming in 1982. She wasn't identified until 2015 when the DNA from her sister was given and, the fa- and from the family and it was matched to tissue samples that actually saved from her remains and she was actually pregnant at the time of her murder as I well no that's awful I think I she know. was quite far into that pregnancy as well yeah it was when it's like eight months I or think something. it was eight months yeah. so you like it's not like you wouldn't have known no he would have known yeah awful um so there are a few other remaining cases that potentially are connected to him but they're not too sure so cherry and Grayman went missing after being released from jail in Washington. And she was last seen in September of 1976. Now, her photograph was actually found in that cachet that he mm. had in that Seattle storage unit. Um, so she could be somebody who survived. Yeah. Um, but but that, she's, she's never ne- been heard of She's again. never been heard from since mm. and nobody knows where she is. Yeah. Um, Antoinette or Tony Jean Whitaker, she was 13 and she was found murdered in 1977. Um, she had been living in a foster care home. And again, he became a person of interest in her case in about 2010. Mm. I think got to do with DNA evidence. I couldn't find a lot on her. Yeah. Um, Joyce Francine Gaunt was 17 years of age when murdered. Murdered. In 1978, she had been living in a group home and when she was last seen, she had said she was going to meet a man in one of the local parks. Um, Again, in this 2010, when they were doing all of this inquest and doing all of this DNA testing, again, she became a person of interest. And I believe a photo of her may have been identified in that Mm. Seattle, Seattle locker unit as well. Yeah. So the photos of all these girls that we can see like they they are actually beautiful. Like every single one of those girls are just so beautiful. Yeah. They're really nice. And this is obviously another reason why he was drawn to them. You know, he's he's 
sees a pretty girl he's like hey I can take pictures of you you know do you want to do some modeling but do I do like encourage everyone who's listening do go and have a look at these photos because they are still out there and they still want to link as many people and murders as they can to Roddy Alcala even after death but even for closure for those families and also I mean I mean again like it kind of brings me back to kind of other serial killers that he is he is kind of compared to Ted Bundy a lot Rodney mm. Alcala and I think it's because um the bite marks that they left which um helped to actually convict them just like it did with Ted Bundy's bite mark um the crisscrossing across states to find victims as well you know a bit Bundy went from Florida to uh, like what Utah he was in and um, places like that um, the charm and the looks that they were known to possess you know these good looking yeah. charming guys they both represented themselves in court because they wanted to stand up and be a big part of it like it was all a show they were, they were you know attractive they were which is disarming to female victims and they seemed normal and they also were known to like the fact that they could have been really successful if they'd put their intelligence and their charm to something um, you know productive so yeah, it is quite quite a similar kind of case, and also the fact that they both are suspected of killing hundreds of young women. Oh, young women yeah. But that brings us to the end of the case of Rodney Alcala, the dating game killer. Absolutely, and again, another murderer that I am glad to see the back of. Absolutely, guys. So um, we will be back next week for another episode um we hope you enjoyed it please do follow us on all of our social medias and please message us if you've got any suggestions for cases drop into our dms on instagram and we'll see you all next week bye absolutely thanks everybody don't forget to follow us oh Oh. and also please do rate us as well yes (laughs) but nice rates (laughs) thanks bye Bye.